Inside Out with Nick Holt. guest on today's program became a reluctant protagonist in a modern-day David and Goliath battle. In 2019, at just 20 years of age, Drew Pavlo made international headlines and struck fear into the highest halls of one of the world's top-ranked universities. Two years on, the battle for Drew and his family continues. Drew Pavlo. Firstly, I just want to thank you for... Uh your great patience with me. I, I rocked up two hours late no in my gym clothes no and then problem. I see Nick's in the beautiful suit and he even has lemon lime bitters for me because I asked him. So Got to keep the guests happy, he's, man. He's, he's very much, he's really bent over backwards to accommodate <laughs> me today. But yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a beautiful studio. You're welcome. Uh, I think that your story is a story that the Australian people need to hear, Drew. Man, it, it's, it's honestly a really mental story, to be honest. I can't even believe... It's like absurd to think like my life has turned out like this um, because when it all started, like I never in a million years envisioned being in this position a couple of years down the track. It's now, as you said, like almost been two years and like I guess I've really settled into into the groove of being a full-time activist and this being my life now. It's taken, it's been such a long journey. Okay, let's just briefly put some context around that journey. So... At the time when you did make international headlines uh, for your involvement in uh, a particular protest, what, what were you doing at the time? So I was at the University of Queensland. I was in my final year of my studies. Um, I was studying philosophy, history and English literature, the core subjects of the humanities. Mm. I was really passionate about my studies. I guess the life I sort of had in mind at that time, I wanted to finish my degree, go and do a PhD. I wanted to actually be an academic. I wanted to be in a university my entire life. Mm. I loved university so much. I I thought I would want to become a professor and like there would be no other place I'd rather be than being in a university. Mm. You know, not not to sound like a prick or anything, but but I mean, like the life of the mind has always been something like I really enjoy and love. Have you always been a curious intellectual or do you more enjoy the rigorous intellectual debates? Oh, I love a good debate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the term intellectual to describe myself because it's a bit of a uh, prick term. But I mean, I just am a concerned citizen. I'm, I'm engaged with the debate. Okay. I've always been concerned so much for the well-being of society. I've always been super, super interested in politics and the collective good and things like of that nature. So I was studying, for example, like political philosophy, moral philosophy, um, and the sorts of questions we would ask was like. What is the ideal type of community? What what obligations and duties do you have to your fellow man? That sort of thing. Okay. Increasingly, I became of the view that I have to live my life for other people. I have to be a man for others. In conjunction with my f- studies in philosophy, I was studying history. One of the courses I studied there was the history of genocide. And I also studied this uh, in my own time as well when I was younger. One genocide we really covered in depth was the Rwandan genocide and mm. also the Bosnian genocide in which the Bosnian Muslims were massacred by Serb fascists. And the Rwandan genocide, reading about that as well, that was just such a, that was a really affecting thing for me because I just kept on coming back to the idea, you know, this occurred in 1994, you know, my parents were alive to see it happen. Right. All around us, you know, there are people who lived through that. And yeah, sure, it happened 
halfway across the world. So I guess it wasn't the priority for people. But coming back to those ideas, what what do we owe? What sort of duties and obligations do we owe our fellow men? Like I just came to believe like those that failed to stop that genocide, that was a truly, truly terrible moral failure on the part of the international community. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually resolved with myself when genocide rears its ugly head again across the pages of history. I refuse to be one of those people who just decided to look the other way because it was too inconvenient to talk about. And so while I was studying my philosophy, studying my history, I just progressively became more and more aware of what was happening in China with regard to atrocities against Uyghurs, also Tibetans and Hong Kongers. But the the first primary focus, I suppose, for me was Uyghurs. And from 2017, 2018, I remember reading stories about the mass roundups with a million people placed in concentration camps. Right. I understood that within the prism of my history studies and my philosophy studies, the failure to intervene to stop Rwandan genocide, the failure to save the Bosnian Muslim men and boys of Srebrenica when the United Nations peacekeepers just basically abandoned the village to slaughter. Mm. That was the mental worldview within which I was understanding the Uyghur genocide. We were in a society here in Australia in which China was our number one trading partner. It still is, by the way. And so many people across the Australian political, business, cultural, media elite chose to just not give a shit about what was happening. I mean, to me, it was something that demanded as much moral attention as the Bosnian genocide, the Rwandan genocide. And yet this was like not something that would ever make the front pages. These were just things that were... Never, never like, you know, those with power in this country, those people that have the economic and economic resources and whatnot to control the conversation and the public discourse, the public arena. I mean, they just did not want this to be on the agenda. So, Drew, for those who perhaps aren't as well read as you in this area, when you talk about genocide, how does it relate today to mainland China? So I'm just basically using the United Nations Convention on Genocide as the definition of genocide. And it basically sets out a number of preconditions under which genocide can be found to be occurring. One is killing members of the group. Two is inflicting serious bodily or mental harm on that group. Um, Three is taking efforts to create conditions of life that are unsustainable for human existence for that group. Efforts to suppress births within that group and then the final one is forcibly transferring members of one group to another with the intention of culturally annihilating them and how many of those preconditions drew have been met in regards to the treatment of the uyghurs so we know that at least four of those five preconditions have been met in china at the moment so unfortunately i mean given the paucity of accounts that are coming out of there we don't necessarily know right which is a really terrifying thought it does not necessarily appear on the face of things right now, given what we currently know that there is mass killing involved, although there is definitely deaths of neglect in these concentration camps, deaths of disease and things of that nature that would not occur were it not for these people being rounded up in the concentration camps. So mm. the death is still at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party's regime. And this is, this is something that is admitted openly by the Chinese government. There have been forced abortions in... Xinjiang, wow. primarily uh, carried out on Uyghur women. Mm. Um, there, there's been <clears throat> forced sterilizations as well. The Chinese government 
when presented with these reports, um, this was based on an investigation by Associated Press. Right. When presented with these reports, the Chinese government basically just just said, yeah, and... Blind mm, eye. Because the Chinese government basically said, we're actually liberating Uyghur women by um, making them no longer baby-making machines. That, that right? was literally the... Jeez. Those were the words of the US-China... The China consulate, I think, on the west coast of the US. And it was at this time, Drew, that you were also advocating for pro-Hong Kong democracy... Did you see these two as one in the same thing? I saw them as interlinked, right? Because the laboratory of repression that the Chinese government pioneered for Uyghurs and Tibetans, these ethnic minority groups in the far-flung sort of restive provinces of the, chi- of the country's West, those, those policies which were designed in this laboratory of repression were then transported and forced upon the Hong Konger people. So, for example... Um, with Uyghurs and Tibetans, there is the criminalization of the language. There is the criminalization of top cultural figures are hounded and persecuted. So in Hong Kong, we saw attempts to place standard Mandarin at the core of schooling curriculum, thereby displacing Cantonese. Mm. No matter what the Chinese government says, these are not mutually intelligible um, dialects. There was the attempt to enforce propaganda in schools that, was, that would try and indoctrinate Hong Kong children into uh, national pride in the motherland. Um, attempts basically to foist on the city this standard Han nationalist cultural and ethnic identity. Mm. This is what the Chinese government has done with its ethnic minority policies with regard to Uyghurs and Tibetans. Right. They now do this in Hong Kong. It's basically an attempt to obliterate any and all cultural differences. It's like social engineering. It's a process of social engineering carried out by the top Chinese Communist Party leadership. And so I saw um, these types of things that were leading to grievances in the city of Hong Kong and f- like getting the young youngsters of the city onto the streets and protesting. And then I saw the response of the, Chinese, of the riot police in the city to these youngsters. We saw Hong Kongers being bashed and brutalised by these riot police. These were, in many cases, people my exact age, 20, Mm. 21 years old. Young kids. And I just felt, wow, like, there but for the grace of God go I, Mm. that they could have been me. Mm. That's right. If I'd been born a Uyghur, the suffering that would just come with having been born a member of this group that is just criminalized from birth, basically. Mm. Or if I'd been born a Hong Konger without hope because... The Chinese government steadily, year by year, increases its repressive control over the city. And there's no political or cultural outlet for you to oppose that. Mm. For example, now all free speech in the city is oppressed, is completely criminalised. Like with the new national security legislation, you literally cannot express dissent anymore. Mm. You were just rounded up and taken away. People have been threatened with life imprisonment for simply just holding up flags that say Hong Kong independence and stuff like that. Okay, so we have a nice broad picture now of what it was that created that fire inside you to begin with, Drew. It was a fire, yeah. But the University of Queensland, a university you couldn't wait to get into, tried to put that fire out, didn't they? They tried to put it out. They tried to extinguish it. It, it, did not, it was not successful. So tell me how they tried to put that fire out, Drew. The University of Queensland, owing to its very close economic relationship with the Chinese government, a relationship that is worth billions over the long term, at least 200 to $300 million each year. Those are the figures prior to the pandemic. The Vice-Chancellor of the University of Queensland, Peter Hoy, he was on a $1.5 million salary. 
we know that he was getting a $200,000 bonus every year on top of that $1.5 million salary based on his efforts or his abilities to deepen the relationship with China. That was one of the KPIs he was being asked to meet each and every year. And this is proven fact? This is proven fact. Um, I was on the UQ Senate and Mm. I can talk about this now. I was the only person on the UQ Senate to say, hang on, why is this going on? I was told by the Chancellor, Peter Varghese, Mm. this is in the university's best interests. I did not think that. I never saw the university as just simply this corporate entity mm-hmm. designed to make as much profit as possible from basically taking in students from everywhere and just price gouging them. I never thought, I never saw the university as just mm-hmm. simply a corporate entity. I saw it as a community of scholars and students. Right. I thought, how is it in the best interest of this community of scholars and students for the vice chancellor to be getting a $200,000 bonus each year based on deepening ties with a regime committing genocide? So what did you do when you were removed from your elected position on the UQ Senate. I went to the Australian Parliament. I went to Senator James Patterson and I gave him the documents. I knew I couldn't leak them personally because when I made these comments at the University Senate, they reminded me that if I were to say talk about it publicly, I'd be immediately removed from the Senate. Mm-hmm. So I went to Senator James Patterson, who has the protection of parliamentary privilege, and he read them out in the Australian Parliament. Okay. Peter Hoy was getting a $200,000 bonus every year Jeez. for deepening ties with this regime committing genocide. Mm. So I knew, I knew that there were these really close economic business ties. The top leaders of the university had very close personal inter, interpersonal ties with the regime. Mm. So Peter Hoy, the vice chancellor, who was ultimately the man who orchestrated the entire attempt to expel me. Right. Peter Hoy was on the board of Hanban Worldwide, which is a subsidiary of the Chinese Ministry of Education. Hanban manages Confucius Institutes worldwide. The United States government. That's the Confucius Institute at UQ? Yeah. Okay. And the United States government has since described the Confucius Institutes as propaganda vehicles for the Chinese Communist Party. Peter Hoy was on the board of Hanban for five years. He was an international expert advisor or something like that. And in 2015, he was actually flown to Shanghai. China's vice premier strung a medallion around his neck, gave him the most outstanding individual of the year award for his efforts promoting Confucius Institutes worldwide. Wow. So Peter Hoy was being personally rewarded by the Chinese government for promoting their propaganda interests globally. There were other really, really, really worrying things happening at the university. So they had appointed Brisbane Chinese Consul General Zhu Zhe mm-hmm. to an honorary professorship. This was a serving Chinese government diplomat. He was being awarded an honorary doctorate. That's right. He did not have any intellectual credentials to his name. Mm. It's not like this was an amazing writer or an amazing thinker. He was just simply, like before he was posted to Brisbane as a Chinese consul general, he, his early years in life were spent as a police officer and a Chinese state security official. Okay. And he was being given an awarded... He was giving, being given an honorary doctorate, I think, for his services to like... Chinese language and culture or something like that. It was just ridiculous. And he was being made a professor of the University of Queensland and Peter Hoy was giving him the medal, the, the doctorate and the award. and The honorary doctorate. Honorary yep. professorship. And, you know, very interestingly, this was not mentioned in the Australian media whatsoever. That's right. It was, however, published all across WeChat and Chinese hmm. language media. But for some reason, the university didn't want to publicise this in Australian language media. Australian... English language media, why would that be? Possibly because they would have worked out, because, possibly because they knew that people would very quickly question, why are you appointing a serving official of a regime committing genocide to an honorary professorship at your university? Mm. As we speak right now, actually, and it's been two years since, this, since that first day, he's still an honorary professor at the University of Queensland. Two years later, 
Is that right? That was a really concerning thing as well. Possibly the most concerning of the bunch. Um, we found out through an ABC Four Corners investigatory report that at least four courses at the University of Queensland had been directly funded by the Confucius Institute, meaning they were directly funded by the Chinese government. What were those courses? The most concerning course of these four was called Understanding China. It was a third-year level economics course. It was a really weird sort of uh, course edition. It was only recently announced two, three years ago. There were already multiple level three economics courses for third-year students. Um, specialising in understanding the Chinese economy and stuff like that. So why was this being announced by the Business Economics School? What very quickly became clear once looking into the, what this course um, focused on, it had nothing to do with economics. In, in many places, it was just basically regurgitating Chinese state lines about sensitive political issues. So for example, when it came to Uyghurs, it literally just parroted the Chinese government's propaganda point so in the week where classes discussed Uyghurs, and this is at one of Australia's top universities, one of the world's great, supposedly great universities, students were told during their classes, and this is according to the PowerPoint slides, Uyghurs are overrepresented in Chinese government terror statistics, and that needs to be like, taken into account when considering this crackdown. This is literally the Chinese government's propaganda line. Why on earth you would trust Chinese government statistics, terror statistics, you know, about Uyghur Muslims? really boggles the mind. And then, for example, um, students were asked to, con to debate in class whether the Hong Kong protests were an example of political terrorism. So in a number of cases, this just was seemingly parroting Chinese state government lines while so many ordinary people were suffering. We'll be back for the second half of this conversation with Drew Pavlo in just a moment. But firstly, if you want your business to get found on Google, visit searchtempo.com. That's S-E-A-R-C-H-T-E-M-P-O.com. Unlike many agencies, SearchTempo uses Australian university-trained English-speaking experts to help you generate more business through Google. SearchTempo has helped businesses like yours since 2007. Packages start from just $295 a month. Visit searchtempo.com and get your business to the top of Google today. So you go back to July 24 and that was the day that really changed my life because it still really boggles the mind that this was allowed to occur right here, one of Australia's best universities on Australian soil. I was just really fired up. I was really upset about what was happening. I wanted to basically kick up a fuss. I wanted to make the student body aware of what was happening. And look, like I, I held this protest hoping that we would be able to radicalize the student body, wake people up to what was happening. I, hadn't, I did not think really at all whatsoever about international media, even Australian media. I didn't know a single journalist. I didn't have a single media contact. Now the way that things have transpired in my life and I've got this platform now, people go, Drew was astroturfed. Like he, he was the, like this, he was trained and he was like, he was sent that day to be like, man, I was late to my own protest. It was so poorly organized. It was my first ever protest. I had 15 people with me. It was just my mates at university. I worked with like the local Hong Konger group and my mates at university. We were like, okay, we don't have numbers, so what can we do? We can't hold a rally or anything. We worked out, you know, market day was the really busiest day of the year. That's the busiest day of the year on campus. 40,000 students will probably be there. We knew that if you put people in a strategic position, you could really kick up a fuss. 
So we planned a sit-in and we looked for the right location and we found a walkway between the union complex and the great court, which is like the heart of the university. We knew that on market day, there'd be hundreds of people walking past this in this particular hallway. It's quite narrow, like per minute, there'd be hundreds. And we just thought, you know, get 15 people, block it off. That'll cause a ruckus. Never would have thought it would have blown up the way it was, the way it has. And what did happen? So I went there with my 15 mates and we held the sit-in and the first hour or so was, went completely normally. We were about to end the rally because we were sort of like losing steam, people giving up. People, I mean, people just, we were not hardened, you know, activists, people just getting bored and walking off. So we started with 15 people. We were probably down to like eight or nine. It was just like me and like the core. And they decided to, I guess, you know, change the course of Australia-China relations for all history. And who were they? Basically, the Chinese student body was mobilized by a few sort of nationalist leaders, and we did not realize what was really happening. There had been a lot of death threats and attacks on the Facebook event page, but I just thought that was your standard kind of um, online trolling. And, you know, I'd, I'd have responded back to some of these trolls like, fuck you, we'll see you there and stuff like that. But I was not really prepared for a fight. I was not like, I'd never been in a fight in my entire life. I, I just, I did not expect violence. I you, don't, expect- you don't strike me as an aggressive man. <sighs> I, I'd say in, in terms of your temperament, intellectually, physically oh, aggressive. Oh yeah, I'm not really physically aggressive whatsoever. Because um, you know, as I told you, like I was more, I was always living up here. I, you know, I was not like, I was not sporty. I was never the athletic type or anything. I was living in somewhere in head. Okay, so you're at the protest. So I'm I'm there, and we had not expected any of. We had not expected violence. We had not expected you know a counter protest or anything. We we're losing steam. People were getting bored, and then all of a sudden. We like sort of looked up and I, I looked up to the side and then there's these two hulking guys, both wearing sunglasses. One of them's got an earpiece in. They've got backpacks with changes of clothes in them. And they basically converge on me from different angles. I'm sitting down leading the protest with the megaphone. They converge from different angles so that I've got no sort of line of escape. And how old do you think these counter-protesters were? They looked well above the student age in their 30s. So you think it's possible that these were not students? I know for certain these were not students and I, I can get into that later. But basically what happened was later that day after like the violence had occurred and there was a standoff, police called me aside as the leader of the pro-democracy side and called aside the leader of the nationalists to try and come to some kind of peaceful resolution. And we were going, we just want to leave peacefully. Like we don't want any violence. We just want to leave now peacefully. We want safe passage. The leader of the nationalists in full view of the police said, we will not let you go safely until you apologize to the Chinese nation. And then he even said, right in f- full view of the police and the UQ security guards, there are people in my crowd who are not students, and I can't protect you from them if you don't apologize. So you're saying that these protesters were sent there as professional disruptors by the Chinese? They were sent there as disruptors. They were sent there with the sole purpose of sowing violence. And how did that violence unfold? They converged on me from different angles, so I had no pl- way of escaping. I was sitting down. One of them rips the megaphone from my hands. I get up to try and confront them. I'd never been in a fight in my entire life, and just, you know, everything slows down when these sorts of things happen. I was just like, oh, shit, you know, there are hundreds of people surrounding us now. Because I looked around, and I was like, oh, crap. We've actually been surrounded on all sides, and there's hundreds of people now. I knew all these people fil- filming, and I was like, oh, I can't just, like, let these fucking cunts do this to me i have to fucking stand up for myself even though i don't know how to fight i tried to get back up and like confront them push them get punched in the ribs i fall to the ground i try to get back up one more time and do it i get got punched twice then and i and i was thrown to the ground and as soon as that happened um then the chinese national anthem began playing the leader of the nationalist crowd had a big boom speaker playing the national anthem it was time to the second 
seemingly because just as soon as I was like thrown to the ground after being punched, the Chinese national anthem started playing and we realised we'd been completely surrounded. In their eyes, of a conquest? It was a display of force. They wanted a display of force. They wanted to show like you can't speak out against the Chinese government here in Australia. What do you think? This, like it was a show of force designed to intimidate people into silence. And um, we realised we had been completely surrounded. I was like, oh shit, because we had ten people, and they had, from the looks of it, three hundred to four hundred. Later, later on, um, as their numbers kept growing, like our numbers swelled as well over the course of the day. Just to confirm, some of these three hundred people were presumably just regular UQ students, right? I think the vast majority of, I'll, I'll be clear, I think the vast majority of students, of those people, of those, that crowd were students that day. I, I've in the past made that claim that the people who physically attacked me were not students. That's based off like the facts we have. And, and some people have gone, he thinks that there's just hundreds of spies on campus and he, he sees a red under every bed. No, no, no. I, I, I acknowledge that the vast majority of that crowd were students and the vast majority of that crowd were peaceful, however aggressive it was. They were chanting national slogans and whatnot. But there were at least a couple men that day and they were part of like a group and they were there to sow violence. Okay. So after that violence, talk me through the weeks and months that followed. Yeah. Um, it became so bad that day because they were like, the ultimate police estimate was that there were 500 to 600 nationalists. The Chinese students refused to allow us to leave safely because I would not uh, apologize to the Chinese nation in their own words. We had to leave with police protecting us because no one could guarantee our safety otherwise. On Australian campus, people had to have a police escort because the violence was that ridiculous, you know. In the days and weeks after, like, you know, things were so bad, I would only be on campus with groups of my mates. Like, I would never be alone on campus because I was just so scared of being jumped. There were people who were jumped. Like, there was a Hong Konger student, for example, on the night of July 24. Um, he was wearing a Hong Kong Student Association jumper. And so he was obviously marked out as a Hong Konger. He was followed without him knowing to the car parks. In the car parks, he was jumped by these men and they physically assaulted him, bashed him for being a Hong Konger. This is the type of thing we were, we were facing. These, these guys were fascists, you know. They were targeting people based on their ethnicity. That guy's a Hong Konger, we'll bash him. And which side did the university take? The university, this is, this is the really sick thing. So the university took the side of the nationalist students who sowed violence that day. We, knew, we know from Freedom of Information requests that on the night of July 24, 2019, Within the senior leadership of the University of Queensland, there was an email sent to Rong Yu Lee, who's the vice chancellor for external engagement. He's, he's responsible for liaising with the Chinese government and is also the chair of the Confucius Institute board at UQ. He was asked, can you please send this, this statement about today's events to the Chinese consulate for review? And it was a statement about how UQ had responded. The ordinary meaning of the words for review, the ordinary meaning of those words in the English language is for evaluation. It seems that on the night of July 24, the U, that UQ was going off to the Chinese consulate to evaluate that its response had been correct and appropriate. Right. Just ridiculous. And then also Chinese consul general Zhu Zhe, in his capacity as an honorary professor, he issued a statement praising the patriotism of the Chinese students who opposed us. He said, we praise the self-motivated patriotism of the students who opposed the separatists. And... To be accused of being a separatist in China, that is the highest crime under which you can ever be convicted by the state. It's worse than pedophilia. It's worse than murder. It's worse than rape. Separatism carries the death penalty in China. And they were saying that is a, this is a separatist rally and we endorse the patriotism of the Chinese students who oppose it, the Chinese students who, who bashed me. 
So what was the state government's response to this, uh, in particular, Anastasia Palaszczuk? The, the state government's response was actually quite remarkable. So not a single person was charged based on the violence of that day. We made multiple police reports. I made multiple police reports with a lawyer present. Um, Hong Konger girls went and reported to the police because I was not the only person assaulted that day. There were Hong Kongers who were chokeslammed to the ground. As I said, there was the Hong Konger who was bashed in the car park. There, was, there were Hong Kongers who were bitten. There were Hong Kong girls who had dresses ripped. Did you say bitten? Bitten. And, sec- and a security guard was bitten at UQ. I've seen the photos because... That's barbaric, isn't it? I've seen the picture of the security guard's hand that was bitten. It's, it's insane that this... It's insane, man. A security guard was bitten. I don't know the exact number, but there were at least five to six police reports made on that day alone, July 24. And not a single person was charged until 11 months later. What was the thing that made them act? Belkata watched my 60 Minutes episode and he said, why is no one being charged for this violence? Well, that's a very good question. And he started attacking the state government within a week that they had charged one of these guys. But that was only after he had already left the country. Border force records show that he left the country almost immediately after the first protest. Mm. So, so just the level, the level, the level. Frustration, I imagine. So frustrating. And how old were you when this was happening, mate? I was 20 when this happened. And the pressures, the pressures were so immense at the time. Like I, I was saying this before, but I saw a photo of myself before that first rally. And the, the difference between me now and how I looked back then, like my friend said, you know, you've aged five, six years in just two years. And you still look young. Oh, thank you, man. But not a day over 21. Thank you, man. But I guess just the stress has been incredible. Were you getting death threats? As soon as Consul General Zuger put out the statement saying, we endorse the patriotism of the students who oppose the separatists. And then I was named in Chinese state media as the leader of the separatist rally. And my photo was displayed as well. So I was being singled out. Was that in the South China Morning Post? This was in Global Times, which is the Chinese state media propaganda, English language propaganda outlet. And, um, and they named me as, a, as the separatist rally. The, vi- the videos of the Chinese students with the boom speaker and stuff like that, they went viral in China. They got 100 million views and people were endorsing, going, they're such patriots, we love them and stuff like that. And, um, and, then, and then as soon as Consul General Zuger put out the statement saying I'm a separatist, then I had h- hundreds of abusive messages all across my social media. I woke up the next day and, you know, so many abusive messages saying, like, we will kill you, we'll have a hitman kill you, hire a killer on the dark web, kill you, um, you will never be safe in Brisbane, we'll kill your family, we'll torture and rape your mother in front of you, white trash pig. And how did that make you feel at the time, Drew? That was really, I, that was crazy because I, I was not in a million years expecting that to be my life. Just the stress associated was insane. You know, and how did it make your parents feel? They own a fruit shop, right? My parents are a Greek immigrant family. Um, always kept their head down, never been involved in politics, always lived a quite quiet life, always wanted to live away from the public glare. And they absolutely hated what I was doing. And they were so against it. And the stress and the pressure that put on my family. So there were a couple of days, um, especially when the death threats were flowing in at the start, there were a couple of days where I didn't know where I was going to live because... I, I didn't want to put my family at risk. And so there was almost a couple of days where I was on the verge of homelessness and I was going to have to just couch surf with mates for weeks at a time. It's a very stressful ordeal for a young man of any age. And for all the people that thought like, oh, this guy was like, you know, a trained, trained like crisis actor, trained, trained activist who's prepared for all this. Like 
Man, I had $500 in my bank account. I was on the verge of homelessness. My family hated me. I lost so many close friends because I, I had these so-called best friends who were like, we don't want to be associated anymore. I, um, I don't want to talk too much about this, but like, you know, in my personal life, lost a relationship over it and stuff like that. Very, and just really, really hurt me and killed me. So it's been about two years now. So I guess the way things really escalated and and became this sort of like international scandal was UQ take, took the side of the Chinese nationalist Hen Zhuzhe and actually tried to expel me. I had a big extended fight with them. Students elected me to the Senate, which runs the university, and, and UQ did not like that and they expelled me for it. They, had, they brought in international lawyers. They spent millions probably trying to go after me. And this was after Chinese state media attacked me and said, you know, expel him. He's a... He's, a, he's an anti-China racist rioter. They were literally encouraging UQ to expel me. The Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the spokesperson, Zhao Lijian, he singled me out by name. This is a spokesperson for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Wow. Singled me out by name. Drew Pavlo is this anti-China propagandist or something like that. And so, like, the way my life has just... It just spiraled. It's just crazy. And, um, you know, I'm still fighting now. Like I'm almost, I'm almost back from my expulsion as a student. I'm almost allowed back at UQ, and um, Peter Hoy, the man who, the man who um, orchestrated the expulsion attempt at UQ, he's been appointed the vice chancellor of the University of Adelaide now. With quite a healthy salary, I understand. In the millions, uh, five-year deal worth millions. It's just so frustrating because the people who went after me have been actually rewarded. The Chancellor, Peter Varghese, a new five-year contract worth a million. Peter Hoy, new, fi- new five-year contract at University of Adelaide, worth millions. Sally Pitkin, the lady that chaired the expulsion committee, was awarded an, Australian or- an Order of Australia on Australian Day. All these people have been awarded by the financial and business and political elite for what they've done to me. And it's so unfair, and that's why I keep fighting. People go, oh, you're being vindictive at this point. Well, I'm not being vindictive. I've never had an apology. I've never, been- I've never had anything to move on from. What, how can I move on when I've never faced just, I've never had justice. I was expelled on unjust pretexts because of my political views. And then all the people who did that to me, they're all being rewarded right now. Drew, you're a very courageous young man. I thank you very much for being on the program. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how this unfolds and we will follow it on this program. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That was good. That was awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. That was awesome. Um, yeah, I reckon the audio for come. Just a reminder, you can now find all previous episodes of Inside Out on Spotify, iTunes, and now iHeartRadio. Radio.